Well, I counted a great privilege to be here this morning. As uh, Danny mentioned, this is sturdy. Danny mentioned I'm from a Northern California. I always like to clar- clarify Northern California. It's a very different part of the state. But um, I grew up in a small town that was even smaller than Dillon, uh, 3,000 people, 100 miles from a three-color stoplight. Loved it there. My dad wrote us a little note when we had graduated, my brother and I from high school, and that little note said, Alturas, that was the town I grew up in, the starting place to anywhere in the world. And that was really my motivation to minister in a small community because there's there's a great need for ministry in the rural area. So we were very grateful when God brought us to Dillon. But as I was um, asked to come here, I had some... um, was reminded of a time when I was going through my Master's of Divinity. It was my fourth year, so I'd gotten to know some of the professors fairly well. And um, I don't know, writing was a struggle for me, writing, grammar, all of that. But my wife, extremely good at grammar. So every paper I'd write, every email I'd, I'd, uh, before I'd send it, she would look at that just to say, okay, yep, this is what needs to be changed. And I would make those corrections. And one day I had put off a paper a little bit too long and we had to upload it by 12 o'clock a.m. on a certain date. And I think my paper was uploaded at 11.59 and 30 something odd seconds. So it made the deadline, but because it was so behind, Emily didn't have a chance to, to proofread that paper. And all the assignments went in, and after they'd been graded, the professor stopped me after college, or after the class, and pulled me aside and said, Blake? And I said, yes. And he said, does your wife normally proofread your papers? And I said, yes, thinking that I had done something incredibly wrong. And he looked, looked at me and said, well, um, I suggest you continue having her <laughs> proofread your papers. So, uh, so she did, and by God's grace, um, I graduated from the Master's Seminary and um, was called then to serve in a, as an associate pastor in Paradise, California. Now, you guys may recognize that name, and if you'd seen on the news, Paradise, almost a year ago now, burned completely to the ground. And... In the church that we served at, only two members of the church had their home survive. The rest were burned completely to the ground. The home that my wife and I lived in burned completely to the ground. But by God's mercies, the church stood, and they're able to meet back in that facility now. Though none of the people live in the community, they commute and are meeting there at that church. But After the fire happened, we were in Dillon, and we made a quick trip back because our our grandparents lost a home, my brother lost his house, all of our friends and people that we loved there at the church lost their homes, and we wanted to be there and encourage them and comfort them however we could. And while we were there, we heard stories um, of just absolute terror that people experienced and went through, because it was a matter of hours before that town was completely on fire, engulfed in flames, just black, toxic flame that light would hardly cut through. And we heard the story of one of the, the grandmas of the church as she was trying to get out of the town, and she had her granddaughter in the back of the car. And with 100-foot flames on each side of her, just uh, burning her as she's driving through, trying to get out of this town, she looks in front of her and sees a wall of fire. She doesn't know if there's a tree across the road, if there's a car that's tires had burned out. She doesn't know anything. She just knows the only option I have is to hit the gas 
and go. So she did. She hit the gas, blew through the flames, came out on the other side. But she said the car behind her, she didn't remember seeing that car come out behind her. There was another couple, and he was a sheriff's deputy. So he knew the city pretty well. And while this fire was going on, he was instrumental in making sure traffic was able to uh, flow through the city because that was one of the reasons so many people survived is they were able to keep the traffic going so that people could get out of the city. And while he's making sure people are surviving, he gets a call from his wife, who's pregnant with child and has two little kids in the back of the car. And she says, I don't think we're going to make it. I think this is goodbye. We're deadlocked in traffic and not moving. And you can imagine the panic that set into his heart as he rapidly tried to figure out where are you because it was so black and toxic. Uh, she didn't know where they were. It was hard to find any road in, uh, in paradise. Yet he tried to find the way, found where the traffic was jammed, opened things up. His wife and his kids were able to make it safely out, and uh, as well as everyone else in that line of traffic. And these residents of paradise, in a matter of moments, found themselves in a situation where they were asking, God, help us. God, why? God, what is happening here? Now, in the uh, just rush of the moment, getting to safety, they uh, then were left with the reality, our home is gone. Everything we've ever earned is, is gone. Our jobs are gone. Everything has disappeared. And what are we going to do now? God, what was the purpose of this? Why did this have to happen? How are we going to walk through this? How are we going to move forward? And oftentimes, circumstances in our lives will cause us to question, God, what is it that you're doing? How can there be purpose in what is happening? And this morning, I would like to look um, with you at Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to um, do a quick run through of Habakkuk and see Habakkuk starting off this book with questions to God. What's happening? Why aren't you working? And yet seeing his response at the end of this book being one of great faith, one of rejoicing, even when Habakkuk realized that the situation he was walking into was going to be the most difficult and trying situation he'd ever faced. So as we begin to look at this book of Habakkuk, it's laid out with um, three prayers of Habakkuk. And those first two prayers are followed by a response from God. And we're going to follow this, this general outline as we walk through the book, looking at uh, Habakkuk's first prayer that we're going to call a plea for God's justice. A plea for God's justice. And if you would, look with me at Habakkuk chapter 1. As it reads, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. 
And from Habakkuk's words, we see that this is no doubt a troubled time in the land of Judah. Wickedness is rampant through the nation, through the people. And as Habakkuk writes this, we estimate that it was during, um, most likely during the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, who followed King Josiah. King Josiah was a righteous king that the scriptures say, before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any king like him arise after him. So we believe that uh, during part of Josiah's righteous reign, Habakkuk was there ministering as a prophet. But after Habakkuk died, the evil king Jehoiakim came in to reign. And this is what Jeremiah said of Jehoiakim. You have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. And this is the cry that Habakkuk raises against the nation. He sees violence, he sees iniquity, he sees destruction and strife and contention running rampant. And all this time as he sees the decay and the deterioration of this nation and the evil just become more prevalent, he's crying out to God saying, your law is paralyzed, justice is perverted, wickedness is prevalent and rampant through the nation. And as Habakkuk's prayers were lifted up to the Lord. He shares that he doesn't know if the the Lord is hearing. How long, O Lord, he says, will you not hear me? I cry, but you don't save. Do you look idly at all this wrong? How can you look idly when there is so much evil going on? And as we hear these complaints from Habakkuk, we realize they're not so different from the prayers, the complaints that might arise from our hearts when we see life around us begin to deteriorate or decay, when we would say, how long, Lord? Do you hear me? I cry out, but you're not saving. Are you looking idly at all of this injustice that is happening around us? And God hears Habakkuk's prayers. And we don't know how long he prayed these before Habakkuk received his answer. But God responds to his plea for God's justice to work in the land of Judah. And God responds in verse 5, and he says to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. We'll see what that work is in a moment. But first, we see that God was by no means idle, by no means silent, by no means uh, ignoring the prayers of Habakkuk. But even though Habakkuk can't see what God is doing, God's answer says very clearly he is not silent, he is not idle, but he is working and putting into place a plan so big that Habakkuk is not going to fully understand what is happening. And it shows us God is always working. Even if we don't see it, we don't know it, we don't feel it, God is working. And sometimes, as we will see from God's response to Habakkuk, his plans are not always, his answers to prayers are not always what we would expect them to be, anticipate them to be, or want them to be. What was it that God was doing in Habakkuk's day? 
Well, he says in verse 6, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a foreign, brutal nation. Now, I can imagine that because Habakkuk had lived during that time of uh, Josiah, the righteous king, and watched an evil king come into his place and, and, uh, and pervert the law with much evil, that in Habakkuk's mind, he would have thought, God, the best way to judge the evil is to bring a righteous king in who is going to weed all the idols, weed all the injustice out, put a righteous man on the throne, as the psalmist says in 112, the generation of the upright will be blessed. And this would be a way to see Israel once again prosper. Oftentimes when we pray, we have an idea, we have a response of how we would like God to answer our prayer. But that is not what Habakkuk saw. For instead, God responded, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And to get an idea, what is this Chaldean nation like? Look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So what is God's response? How is he going to judge Israel? Not by bringing a righteous king at this time, but bringing in a brutal nation. God has just described this powerful, Herculean, brutal nation who's going to come in as his instrument of judgment against Israel's evil. Now Habakkuk may have thought that times were bad as he saw the injustice within his own nation. But when a wicked nation comes in to conquer, he was going to see a, a whole nother <clears throat> burden that comes on. Because when an army invades, it's not just those who are doing evil that get affected. It's everyone. It's the righteous and the unrighteous alike that will suffer. When that fire burned through paradise, the righteous and the unrighteous felt its effect. And Habakkuk knew this. He knew he would suffer from this. He knew that Israel would suffer from this. He knew that as the nation, it would cry out in pain at the crushing hands of the Babylonians. And he knew that because God said it, there would be no escape from this judgment of God. And we could ask, what is our response when we receive an answer from God that is anything but what we expected. What is our response? Does that response lead you to fix your eyes upon the pure attributes of a holy and perfect God? Or does your response lead you to doubt or question God's ability, question his purity, question 
his goodness. I'm very grateful for Habakkuk's response because he knew that it was the holy, living, righteous, and perfect God who was speaking. His judgments could not be wrong, no matter how confused Habakkuk may have felt at that time that he received those promises. But even as he heard it in Habakkuk's mind, he's questioning, how can a nation more evil than Israel be used as God's divine instrument of justice? And as we come to to Habakkuk's second prayer, we see his appeal to, to God's holiness, his appeal to God's holiness. And in chapter 1, verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And Habakkuk questions God once more. How can you bring in a nation more evil than Israel? How can you raise up to judge with this evil and brutal, these evil and brutal Babylonians? And he didn't understand God's answer, but he knew the righteousness of God. And he asked once again for an, ap- uh, uh, for an explanation of what is happening. And God answers Habakkuk. He answers Habakkuk. And he answers in chapter 2. And I want to look at chapter 2, verse 2. But, but before we, we get there, Habakkuk's response at the end of chapter 1 is, God, I don't understand these things, but I know that you are perfect. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to question. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to wait until I understand more fully the answer that you're going to give. And the answer comes in chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. And that verse sounds familiar to us. The righteous shall live by faith because it's quoted three times in the New Testament. But here Habakkuk learns that how can God be just by using the Babylonians, this evil nation, to judge Israel? Well, God was not just going to leave it at that. God was going to judge and bring woes upon that Babylonian nation for the evil that they had committed against Israel. And he tells Habakkuk, write this vision down. Make it clear. Make it plain. Write this so that generations after can read these words, can see the righteousness of God, can see even the response of Habakkuk when he receives this news of an impending army coming in and judging Israel. And as he was waiting, while Habakkuk was waiting for this certain judgment, God gave the crucial instruction, the righteous shall live by faith. 
while Israel suffered at the evil of their own leaders. The righteous shall live by faith. While Israel suffered and would suffer at the hands of the Babylonians, the righteous shall live by faith. Today, as the church endures the evils of the world, it endures the effects of the fall of sin and death, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is the comfort that Habakkuk takes when he responds once again to the Lord. So what was Habakkuk's response? In praying, expecting one thing, getting a completely different answer, an answer that he doesn't understand, an answer that he can't see how it's right. What is Habakkuk's response? And we come to chapter 3. And some have uh, stated that this third chapter in Habakkuk is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Others have considered it the greatest prayer of faith. And we see Habakkuk's response. And if you would look with me at Habakkuk chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, verse 1 and 2. And it says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In the Psalms, chapter 86, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This gracious, merciful, loving God is the same God, the same righteous God who is enacting his righteous judgment on the nation of Israel. And Habakkuk, knowing the covenant that God made with Israel, it will not be utterly wiped out, puts his trust knowing, God, in your wrath, in your judgment, remember mercy. Remember mercy. And in the midst of all that would come, Habakkuk lifts his voice to the mercies of God. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, But once Habakkuk had looked to God, once he saw the righteousness of God and reminded himself of the eternal and sovereign God he worshipped, these differences faded into significance, and the relative goodness of Israel seemed unimportant. Habakkuk saw all, including himself, fall short of God's standard and require God's mercy to be saved. In your wrath, remember mercy. And then Habakkuk, as we come towards the end of chapter 3, lays his heart out before the Lord. No doubt, when those individuals and many more were locked in the flames of that fire. They had questions running through their minds. No doubt, they were crying out to God, but there was no room for them to stop. 
There was no room for them to, for the lady with her grandchild on the back to stop on the side of the road. There was no opportunity for the husband to, to stop on the side of the road and not look for, for his wife and his child. But even in those flames, life continued. They had to go forward. And we see Habakkuk moving forward with this news because the righteous shall live by faith. And in verse 16, let's listen to Habakkuk's words as he closes his prayer. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. O God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Knowing all that's coming, knowing the famine, knowing the destruction, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And Habakkuk could say that the Lord is his strength because he lived by Faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And I want to read from Hebrews 10, one of the, the quotes that the New Testament uses of this verse. And that's Hebrews 10, and I'm going to start in verse 36, and it reads, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. We have need of endurance in this life. We have need to press on. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in whom? Faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in the Son that God sent in order that on the cross he might become sin so that those who put their faith in him might become the righteousness of God. So that no matter what the world throws at you, no matter what the world throws at the church, we are safe in the hands of God. One more story was an older gentleman who had diabetes and had almost lost his feet a number of times was in his home and thought, this is it. This is it. I'm not going to be able to make it out. He didn't have a vehicle to drive, a license to drive. And the flames became unbearable. The heat became unbearable. So much so that he thought, I've got to get out of here. I've got to walk. And he began to walk on the side of the road, hoping that someone would stop. What a terrible terrible way to perish in the flames of a fire like this. And yet, 
no matter what comes, no matter how someone might perish, they are safe in the hands of God. And this was his comfort as he was walking through these flames, knowing that if this is it, no matter how terrifying this might be, I am safe in the hands of God. And this man was able to share that testimony because one of the fire engines, the last going through, saw him on the side of the road, picked him up, and was able to bring him to safety. We have many questions in life, but we serve a holy and perfect God. And those who walk by faith, entrusting their life, entrusting the world, entrusting all that happens to Christ, can rejoice, can be glad, and can be blessed. And that is the gift that God gave Habakkuk as he prepared for this coming judgment. This is the hope that he gives to those who have put their faith in Christ as they walk through the world, through every trial, through every tribulation, that in all things we might praise. If you would, please bow with me in a word of prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for this short and yet rich book of Habakkuk. Lord, we want to thank you for this example that Habakkuk had set. Lord, knowing the destruction, the hurt, the pain that would come, he set his eyes on you. And Lord, in you, and through faith, found comfort. Lord, we pray that as we leave here today, you would give our hearts and our eyes the same strength to look in faith upon Jesus Christ. Lord, you know each one here today. You know what they're struggling with. You know their questions of why and how and and how long. You know each one. And Lord, as they look to you, I pray that you will give them great strength to remember the promises of God and be comforted that you are sovereign and over all things. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.